Welcome to Rap Stories, a show where I get the background on some of my favorite albums of all time by the artists who made them. I'm your host, David Dennis Jr., and today I'm joined by Young Guru to discuss Jay-Z's incredible album, American Gangster. There may not be a more appropriate rap name for Jamel Keaton than Young Guru, because that's exactly what he's been to a generation of MCs. Most notably, of course, one of the greatest rappers of all time, Jay-Z. Young Guru has been the mastermind behind the scenes, guiding one of music's most prolific careers. Take, for instance, Jay's 2007 album, American Gangster. Let me tell you why. Back in 2007, I was in the first semester of my senior year in college battling through the thoughts of what the next steps of my life would be. At the same time, hip-hop was in this really exciting space as stars like Kanye West and Lupe Fiasco were dropping classics like Graduation and The Cool. Lil Wayne was figuring out the new internet world by giving out free classics like Drought 3. But Jay-Z's career was at a crossroads. He'd just come back from retirement and dropped Kingdom Come to mix reviews, to say the least. He was more focused on being an executive and CEO of Def Jam while growing his business endeavors like Ace of Spades, Champagne, and the early stages of acquiring the Brooklyn Nets. To paraphrase Jay himself, he was transitioning from a businessman to a businessman. So when news dropped that Jay was actually doing this project, it was shrouded in mystery as a maybe soundtrack, a possible companion album, or a fully separate solo album to coincide with the release of Ridley Scott's film, American Gangster, starring Denzel Washington. On this project, Jay tapped into soul for productions mostly curated by Sean Diddy Combs and the Hitmen and slipped into some vintage whole flows that took us back to the time when he was just a hungry up-and-comer fighting for the rap crown. In the middle of it all was Young Guru, who was physically running between locations, delivering tracks, providing instrumentation, and making sure everything flowed as smoothly as possible. Like most projects in Rockefeller's history, American Gangster isn't possible without Young Guru keeping everything together. Because of his help as a masterful engineer, we got one of the most sonically cohesive and lyrically dense albums from Jay-Z's catalog. A triumph of collaboration and genius. Not to mention, American Gangster is one of the most debated Jay albums. For me, it sits on the Mount Rushmore of Hove projects next to Reasonable Doubt, Blueprint, and The Black Album. For others, including Jay himself, it's a solid outing that isn't as revered as the certified classics. For Young Guru, well, let's find out. Here with me to talk about this iconic project is audio engineer, record producer, DJ, music executive, and one of the most genuine and uniquely talented individuals in the music industry, Young Guru. Welcome to Rap Stories. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, man. Let's get into it. So, all right. So first, I need the like I need the actual backstory. I remember when the album came out, it was like it was going to be the soundtrack. It was going to be like you know a companion piece. There was like Jay Z was mad he wasn't gonna be starring in the movie. Like every there was all kind of stuff going on about what was going on with this. Tell give me give me how this album came to be. I don't know about the part about him uh, being mad that he wasn't starring in the movie. I don't know how much <laughs> acting Jay wants to do. He wants to produce movies, not acting. Um, but the backstory, the part about us going for um, being the soundtrack of the movie that was actually kicked off by Denzel. 
that was Denzel's suggestion um, because Denzel had come through uh, us doing an album prior. You know, it was sort of funny to have Denzel sort of get off of work at 12 o'clock and stop by the studio and listen to what we were doing. Um, there's a famous thing um, on another channel where he, you know, was just commenting and stopping by the studio and listening to music. So when this started, he had made that suggestion to, to the director that Jay should do uh, the soundtrack. But I think the director, and not that he didn't like Jay, but he already had an idea of placing um, sort of time period music in this movie, um, music that was reflective of that exact time period, not knowing what Jay would have done, you know, in a making American Gangster. So that part about it was true, but that was led by Denzel. He was he was very adamant about you should let Jay-Z do the whole soundtrack. But for us, I think it was just um, a way to return, you know, after coming off of, of retirement, but also subject matter wise, um, there was a return for Jay to be able to get back into his story and be able to tell that story from the perspective of what happens if um, if the villain actually wins, I guess is the best way to say it. Or if the person does know when to get out, you know, if you remember the, the movie American Gangster, um, when does when when the character's sitting there and his connect is telling him like, you know, hey, the war is over. How are we going to continue this? You know, and he's judging. He's like, I know how much I've sold to you. You should just stop. And <laughs> you know, it's that classic, that classic story of, of when the hustler does not know when how to stop. Or you know, we we have a classic song too that says I'm addicted to the game. It's just that thing of it wasn't about money. It was just about being addicted to that lifestyle and doing it and looking at how many people, you know, were under your payroll. So that's what this was. It was a return to that. And sonically, it allowed us to have an arc of starting somewhere with big dreams and then inevitably getting to the end where the, the inevitable thing in all of this is either death or jail. So, you know, we end with the song Fall. But it's just, it's an incredible arc and, and it goes along with the movie. We actually sat and watched a preview of the movie every single day while we were making this out. So. We were lucky enough to get sort of early cuts and, and we would just have the movie on repeat um, as inspiration in the background for, for making it. I'm stuck on the Denzel. Like, how does Denzel start coming to the studio? You would have to ask Jay. That's him and Jay's relationship. They, you know, they have a great relationship. Um, and we do that all the time. You know, we're making music. We invite people over. Hey, come listen to what we're doing. You know, you like to have different energy in the room when you're creating. You also like to have just different people's opinions. But of course, it's Denzel Washington, so of course you, right, <laughs> you right. would love Bob. But it, it's really good to see him as a normal person. Um, to see him, like you said, he just you know he, he's coming through with jeans and a white T-shirt and a book bag, and he's like, I just got off of work, so this is like twelve at night. And he's leaving a set in New York City and just stopping by just to hear what we were doing. So that that's pretty much how it worked is between um, Jay and, and his relationship. Obviously, you got to blot the alpacas like something that we just say all the time has become like an iconic phrase. What's the thing in the movie that you sort of remember the most? I think the the, the fur coat to me is is just one of the most powerful scenes because you have somebody who's so disciplined, somebody who is teaching all of the people that work underneath of him not to be loud. You know, he's giving those examples of the loudest person in the room, the weakest person in the room. He's literally, you know, instructing one of his guys about Nikki Barnes and he's saying, oh, you want to be Nikki? You want to be loud? You want to be known? You want to be on the cover of, of, of magazines and newspapers? And, you know, we watch someone's character be so disciplined and because of love or because he doesn't want to disappoint someone who bought him a gift, knowing that this thing is going to be loud, not not in the, the audio sense, but just in the visual sense, 
because the, the police officer, you know, when he's going to the fight and the other person is asking him, well, why are you going to the fight? And he's just like, this is politics because he's looking at who's sitting in what role is going to tell you who's the most important person in the room without them having to explain. So I think Denzel sitting there with that fur on is one time when you see just that one slip of your, your character or your rules brings in enough attention where it starts to bring your organization down. So I think that's the biggest just lesson of seeing that you, you only got to, in this game, you know, especially in the, in the drug game, you only have to make the mistake once. You only got to be slow once. You only got to like just one time because you're playing a life or death. Where did Diddy come from in all this? When did you find out that this album was going to start happening? Well, it wasn't random. You know, we, we had a long-standing relationship with, um, with Diddy. Number one, you know, Jay by himself and myself um, from going from, to Howard University in a different way, you know. Um, but it really, every album is really kicked off or sparked by some inspiration from a producer. If you look at Blueprint, Kanye kind of sparked that off. If you look at, um, if you look at the one we did with Dr. Dre, he sort of sparked that off. If you look at American Gangster, it was Sean C and LV who at the time and, and still to this day are hitmen. And they sort of sparked it off because they just invited Jay to daddy's house and they just had a good, just batch of beats. And it was in that same vein. It was in that same texture of, of songs that would fit for this. So that's how it gets kicked off. I never get, you know, there's never like an email or a text saying, hey, we're going to start doing an album. So Jay just kind of calls me to the studio and we see how the flow goes. And this one was, you know, with a very specific purpose, which that's all Jay needs is just that purpose of what am I talking about? Because we've gotten to this point where we've talked about almost everything in someone's life. So, you know, just having that subject matter um, as a basis of, of a concept he could just flow and just go. So that's, that's really how Puff got involved was that the hitman came up with just these incredible beats. And then once you spark, he'll start rhyming. He'll start coming up with song concepts with sort of fill in blanks of things that we need. And then that, you know, tells the producer what next type of track to make, because we've already made this. If we, you know, if we've gotten to say a rock boys, we know we don't need this, you know, super hype, fast, sort of track we've got that in cover we need ones that cover these sort of subject matters so that's that's how Diddy got me what was your mindset coming into this album and then coming off of Kingdom Come at the time there was a lot of thoughts about where Jay-Z is coming back from retirement you know what is this album status what is Jay-Z doing you know what's his future going to look like because I think some of that business acumen alienate a little bit of folks who did not sort of get that. What was your sort of mindset coming out of Kingdom Come and coming into this album? One, it was once Jay said he was going to retire, you know, I know that you can't stop doing the thing that you love. So it was not only just the retirement, but it was him moving in a different direction. If you remember at that time, he took over Def Jam and became the president of Def Jam, along with L.A. Reid, who was over there. So that was the idea at the time was moving into more of a business standpoint. And we have been making records just every year, dropping every November for such a long time that I think we kind of needed a break and we needed, you know, to refocus on what would be the subject matter of music because we were going into these other, you know, adventures. So when we made Kingdom Come, Kingdom Come was done under the most extraneous circumstances. You know, we were, it's the first album where we didn't record like every day in New York. Um, he was on a world tour. Um, I literally had to fly to Taipei, Taiwan, you know, to go get verses. But, you know, he's doing verses after doing shows. 
Um, so the voice is, you know, two hours deep into doing, you know, huge shows. So it's not the best environment to record in. I mean, we, we were just hitting so many problems. I was, I was in Australia one time we were recording and the power just went out on the whole street. <laughs> you know, we were recording to come all around the world instead of that, our normal focus being in New York City. So I think you hear that somewhat in music. So with American Gangster, again, it was just us going back in and, and realizing, too, that we had new fans or fans that hadn't rolled with us since 1996. Um, you get you know, to a certain degree big enough that you start to gain um, younger fans and you don't know exactly when they came in. So some people came in on Reasonable Doubt. Some people came in on Blueprint. Some people came in, you know, on American Gangster. But um, just going into it, it's, it's just the mindset of being able to go back and Think about those things um, when you were a kid or when you did have, you know, quote unquote, American dream and, and you hadn't reached this pinnacle yet. What those feelings were like and, and drawing on those. Like I said, once we have a subject matter, Jay's incredible with putting words together and tapping into just the feeling and, and the tracks just, just led us there. So it became a simple process of just figuring out which track would, would service what sort of concept. It's almost like scoring the movie. When was the last time you listened to American Gangster? I listen to it all the time. Um, probably maybe about two months ago. You know, it's in my it's in my normal rotation. I, I do um, struggle with where I place it. Mm-hmm. That was going to be my next question: is where is it in the list? It varies for me all the time. So, I mean, obviously, number one is albums are almost like when you fall in love, like you know, you fall in love that first time. So reasonable doubt for me would just always, always, always have this special place in my heart. You know, it was one of those things where at the time I couldn't see past Notorious B.I.G. And Jay was one of those people that made me say, oh, OK, well, there's somebody that can can rhyme on the level of a Notorious Big. And this was even before I knew, you know, their relationship. Blueprint is just super special to me because it's the. The album that is just, we flowed that album in almost a weekend. That's how, how, how in the zone you were. You know, we talk about this in sports and you're just in the zone and it almost feels like you could just throw the basketball from anywhere on the court and it's going to go in. You know, it was like, that's what making the blueprint felt like. It was just song after song. It was just so quick and just so in the zone and like complete one song and then go eat dinner and come back and do another song, like all on the same day. We, we did that almost the entire album in a weekend. The Black album was a conscious effort of this is going to be my last album. This is my retirement. I'm making a list of the producers that I have not worked with so far that are my dream producers, along with, you know, our normal staple of producers like a Timberland, like a Pharrell and like a Just Blaze. But also reaching out to the just, you know, like a DJ Quick, who's a legend. So me getting to work with those people on the Black album, those three albums hold special places for me. American Gangster. When we put it out, I felt as though it was solid, but the public has pushed that album into classic status for me. The way that I've seen it, that album affects people. Noticing, like, say, someone like yourself who may be marking the time when they're in university or in college. For me, you know, sitting in the same room for 10 years straight, you sort of lose some of that of, of this four years went by and there's another generation of people who were in school or in college. And I remember when I was in college and what 92 felt like and you know, those records I'll never forget when, you know, Shook Ones comes out or, you know, I, I mark time with some of those records. So I'm, I'm saying all to say that the people, the public, their response has pushed American Gangster to where now I struggle with the top four. So on any random day, 
you know, reasonable doubt is always, always, always going to be my number one. But depending on what day you, you, you ask me, Blueprint, Black, and American Gangster kind of change spaces. But so I, I just say there's a top four. You know, as you're talking, I think there's like a generational thing, as you mentioned, because like for me, like my favorite Jay-Z album is Blueprint, right? But also like I was like 15 when Blueprint came out. So I was in like right in the middle of my hip hop listening. So Reasonable Doubt, you kind of had to like go back and listen to it. Like I had to go back and listen to it years after it came out. You know, I was 10 when it came out. And some of those references, some of those references, not to cut you off, but some of the references that are in there are very time sensitive. And again, it's a generation and what what drew me initially to a reasonable doubt, just listening to it before I got a chance to work with Jay, was the fact that he shouted out um, a, a very big DC legend when he said the uh, Rayful MMA. And I was just like, oh, how could Jay, you know, know that? And, you know, my lineage being from DC on my father's side, you know, you couldn't be a kid and not remember when, when he got arrested and what that looked like on television and how they had those men chained together. And I was like, when almost like a serial killer, you know, like it was that. So when he says um, Channel 7 News around seven Jews head dead in the mic, it means something to me. It's different. You know, I know exactly what he's referencing. So a lot of people may not get those particular references. It is a generational thing, but it's great for people to go backwards and, and to, to sort of dig those things up. And I like that about this generation that they have so much access, you know, through the different um, services that they can just push a button and go back and listen to your whole history and then sort of get some of the references uh, later on. Yeah, I think that's why my generation particularly likes American Gangster so much because to me, it's the closest relative to Reasonable Doubt, but we were not necessarily of prime hip-hop age and Reasonable Doubt came out, you know? So this is like almost a modern reasonable doubt that hit me right at 21 years old you know so this is like a reasonable doubt for a new generation i think that's why we may hold it in such a you know high regard as opposed to an album like that's how it feels from a generational standpoint and sonically it was a build on on what we were trying to do because on blueprint we were on purpose trying to move the needle because hip-hop had got to a point where uh we, we have this a lot in hip-hop where a style will come in and then everyone copies that style. So at the time, Swiss and Rough Riders, you know, Swiss's style and his what he was doing musically was just dominating so much. And we had lost a little bit of the samples that had got us to that point, you know, in hip hop because everybody was trying to sound like Swiss. You know, Swiss is a good friend of him, and, and he did that on purpose of creating his own lane, his own style. So it was us trying to be different, number one, returning to a particular sound. Um, of sampling heavy, you know, people like to say it's soul samples, but it's not necessarily just just soul. It's, it's just what feels good at the time. So with American Gangster, I feel like that it's elevated. It's that sort of style of what we do, but it also has a lot of live instrumentation, um, which took it to a whole different level. So that part of it is, is very deliberate in terms of sonically, American Gangster is probably the closest to uh, um, to me. You think you guys have something to prove after Kingdom Come? No, absolutely. I did. I don't know. You know, I can't speak for Jay's mind particularly, but I did. You know, it's, it's just like we make art and when people want to criticize or judge your art, all you do, I don't take it personally. You know, it's just like if you don't like this particular thing, I cook the meal. You don't necessarily like this meal. I'm going to cook a different meal. This, you know, I have the culinary skill to be able to cook whatever. So, you know, if you tell me you don't like this meal, I'll cook another one. And that's, it's that simple for me. You know, um, I just go in every time, 
try to put my best foot forward. And there's other factors that come into it that, you know, you can't control. I can't control us doing New York and then the Yankees win, you know, the World Series and they play it. (laughs) There's so many things and so many factors that come into this. So I think with the with the movie, with the timing of what Jay was doing, with Kingdom Come not being people's favorite album. It was just, you know, the time was pregnant for us to come back. You said something earlier that was interesting to me. You said when when American Gangster came out, you thought it was like, okay, you thought it was all right. I'm so interested. How do you take inventory of the actual album when it comes out, if that makes sense? Yeah, you you do your best in terms of wherever you are to give the time to try to put out the best material. And, And music grows and, you know, you have to figure out how to grow inside of that. But it's 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 like lightning in a bottle. When you when you make the classic, you know, you can't predict that it's a classic. And when you make those, it's not something that you can just easily repeat. If that's the case, then we could just, you know, lay out a sheet of dough and, and, and cookie cut everyone to make a classic album. It doesn't work that way. So not every piece of art that Prince made is gonna be, you know, the classic album. You do your best at time and you try to express yourself and, and people as artists, they move in different directions. Sometimes that connects with people. Sometimes it doesn't. But when you have a catalog um, with the depth of, of Jay-Z, you're free to do whatever you want to do at the given time. You're not chasing numbers. You're not chasing sales. You're not chasing being in what we call the white hot space. You know, you want to be hot, but you're only going to be in that white hot space for so long. So it's not necessarily something that I think about where I'm like, I got to top this last album or even top anyone else's album. It's you're aware of the playing field. You're aware of what's going on um, stylistically, sonically, you know, when the music changes, but then you make decisions that are, that are best for you. It's sort of when Jay makes a joke and, you know, says, Hey, go put some auto tune on my voice. And then he laughs and says, no, I don't need no auto tune. You know, you're, it's a conscious decision that we know that auto tune is the prominent thing at the time you know, in music and we're making the decision to not use that thing. So again, that's, that's, you go in and you try your best to make your best expression, but it may not always connect with people, but we're lucky enough that I say nine times out of 10, we, we do connect with people and, and we have fans that grow with us from, you know, you come to one of our shows and there's people there from like eight to eight, you know, and there's people that have worked with us from the beginning that are now bringing their children or sometimes grandchildren, you know, to the shows. It's an interesting thing, but you always just have to be yourself. And I think that's Jay's sort of power is that he always speaks his truth uh, as to where he is in his life. You know, at one time it was reasonable doubt. At one time it was big pimple. And then it gets to a four, 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 where I'm talking about being a father and being married and, you know, giving you my absolute truth. That's, that's one of the things that I just marvel at with Jay is that he just, he will not fabricate on a record. He doesn't, he doesn't lie on the record. It actually has to be the truth. American Gangster's number one Billboard album. Rolling Stone had the number three album of 2007. What was the conversation about going from the business stuff to like going back to the street rap? Was it, was it just about the movie or was that sort of a conduit to like get back into the stuff that people love about Jay-Z? Yeah, it was both at the same time. So obviously it's if you're looking back at your life and you're looking back at situations. Um, so there is sort of a 2020 vision there, but it is sort of a way, uh, I don't want to say an excuse, but it's sort of a way to dip back into those concepts that you might have got on reasonable doubt because it's in context with the movie. So you have to sort of explain the whole journey of, you know, starting out in the beginning and you're dreaming and, you know, 
what it feels like to be in a project and what it feels like to want to be able to provide for your mother and your family and, you know, all of those sort of things. Um, and going through, the, like I said, this whole arc of what figuring out how do I do that, you know, where do I go, then having some success at that. Then, of course, when you get, you know, all the way to the top, there's this super celebration, which to me is rock wars. It's like, oh, we made it. We're here. And then inevitably, like in the movie, you start to see problems, whether or not that's family problems, whether or not that's, you know, people that work for you, whether or not that's problems with other people in your business. You know, you, all of those are, are synonymous with the rap game of, of, you know, nobody, everybody's cheering you when you're the underdog and, and, and you're this underground darling. And then when you get some sort of commercial success, your underground people are like, oh, well, you know, the person in middle America knows about him now. So it's not special and it's not underground anymore. So they kind of leave you a little bit where it's just like, okay, did you want me to be successful or did you want to say I'm the only person that knows about this incredible MC? You know, you have those vantage points. Then when you sit in that chair at the top, you're the target. Everybody wants to be in that chair. So you start to get attacked by other MCs who would have, who have really have never met you and have no problem with you. It's not you, it's the position you hold. You know, you're number one and they want to be in that chair. So, you know, that's synonymous with the drug game. It's just, you know, those things are all parallels. So it allowed us to just dip into those emotions and to see, you know, get those songs that are like, you know, success. And and, and I don't know if, if success would have had that skit in the beginning if we weren't looking at it from a 2020 sort of vision where it's just like everybody gets to that level and they start to, it's, it's your favorite entertainers, uh, uh, actor, you know, uh, uh, sports person, athlete, whenever you get to that top and they're like, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be because all of the stress that comes with it. And you need that older, mature voice to say, hey, well, this is what it is. This is what comes with it. So, you know, it allows you to, to dip into those emotions, but in a really mature way. But it was really important for us at the end to really get you all the way to falling because it's just it's just really like I know I shouldn't have did that. You know, and it gets back to that to that code, you know, that one example of that code. No, I shouldn't have did that. But that's the thing that kind of like takes you down, you know, and, and inevitably, you know, Jay-Z might be one of the only stories that we could really tell where the person gets out and is actually successful. You know, it, it is one of the best stories never told. And we wanted to make sure that we put Fallen in there to, to really tell that story as a warning that this is this is the inevitability of what happens when you get into this game. You're either going to die or you're going to go to jail. You know, there, there, it's one of the two. Where were you when the album came out? This is when leaks really, really, really started happening. Yeah. So was that someone in your mind? But where were you were when it on the actual sort of release date? I can't remember specifically what one was probably still in Rock the Mic. At this point, we had moved from uh, Baseline Studios. And we had created Rock the Mic, which is right around the corner. The baseline was on 26th Street between 6th and 7th in Manhattan. And um, Rock the Mic was on 27th between 6th and 7th. So I know I was there, um, but I can't remember exactly when it dropped that day. Because you have to remember that when albums drop, I'm two months ahead on the next project that we're doing. So, you know, you know like it takes that long to set it up. But in terms of leaks, I was just getting really good at you know, being aware, I'm a computer geek myself, obviously. So, you know, I would do things like the computer that we recorded on in the studio would never be online, number one. Um, we didn't send files. You know, we didn't email, things like that. Puff, Sean C, LV would either come down to the studio with us or we would go to Daddy's house where we did a lot of those things in person so that there was no email trace. 
um, a song. And then I'm very protective of the music, um, even to the point that when we go to mastering, you know, I fly the songs myself to mastering. And even to the point sometimes when we do the actual duplication, because back then it was still this crossover time of MP3s and CDs and even still vinyl. And we had broken up the, uh, not us ourselves, but who Def Jam was using. There are different plants that do the CDs versus doing the vinyl. And I would fly the music in myself so that no one could touch the music. And that's really what it was in stopping leaks. Did you have a similar sort of process now doing that? Absolutely. I mean, if, if I'm recording with him now, let's say um, recent albums like Everything is Love or 444, you know, we're, we're actually just in, in the house. So okay. they don't need to go to any particular studio or things of that nature. Then when I'm mixing, you know, I take them, I work off my drives, you know, I wipe hard drives, you know, in the studio. Um, the assistants that I use most of the time are my assistants. You know, we have a really good working relationship. Myself, uh, with Beyonce, when we did Everything is Love, uh, Stuart, Stuart White is Beyonce's engineer. So we have a really great working, you know, environment with us two. We've worked with them for so long. Uh, but it's really just us two working on it. So that's, that's the way we keep down the leaks. And then just to not announce it to anyone that we're sort of working on album. When we're working on 444 or things of that nature, people at the record company don't even know that we're working on it until we're pretty much ready to start the marketing aspects. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, Motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of Motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the most memorable in-studio moment that you have from Making American Gangster? I would say Denzel stopping by would be just, just one of those, you know, where he's seeing us in this process. Um, there was also a day where we were sort of trying to fill in certain songs in certain uh, places. Um, and Jermaine Dupree came. And Jermaine Dupree's working like a completely old school way where I went and rented like every beat machine you could think of. You know, his list of equipment was just like, you know, I'm working on a Jay-Z song, so I want to have everything available to me. And it was cool for me to sort of set it up, you know, in that old school way. At the same time, he brought No ID with him. And they were working together uh, at that time. And No ID just sitting in the corner using a laptop. And in that same day, you know, you get the Jermaine Dupri song and you also get um, success from No ID. But then in that session, Toomp stops by. And Toomp was playing a bunch of CDs, so his song got made on that day. So it was one of those days where the vibe was just in the room. We ended up, you know, keeping all three of those songs. That was a, a super memorable day because all those producers work in a different way. Like I said, you got one, you know, of course, Jermaine coming from the old school with all of his beat machines and equipment. No ID also coming from the old school with being so up on the new technology that he could just sit there with a laptop. And then Toomp being so prepared and creating his music at home 
but then having a CD just ready to go when he stepped in and he, and he landed a placement. So probably, that was probably the most memorable bit. I know we're doing American Gangster Deep Dive, but I can't have you here and not ask you, like, overall in your career, what's sort of the most memorable studio session that you recall, or the most memorable thing you remember happened in the studio? Uh, probably be friends with Jay. Just the speed of what he was doing and the quality of it, you know, the, the quality of that sort of writing, to be able to write girls, girls, girls that fast, you know, and just the quality of it, but the speed at which he was doing it. You know, again, people make this mistake and think that Jay just hears a beat and goes to stand in front of the microphone and just comes up with it. You, you can't do that. What happens is, is you know, we, we present a beat or present music and he's formulating this song or these raps in his head while he's in the studio part with me and maybe pacing back and forth, mumbling to himself. We, we, we call it his rain man. He's just sort of, you hear him mumbling sort of syllable, but he hasn't said it fully as words yet. And that's his process of writing. So to have that, you know, that in-depth writing being done just in front of you and, you know, him asking, inevitably, most of the time, it's just me and him. So him bouncing ideas off of me, saying, is this the right word? Are we going in the right direction? Is there a better way for me to say this or that? Those are the most memorable, but that blueprint was just, it was just something special. It's like, I don't know, you know, there are classic, Nirvana has a classic album. ACDC has a classic album. Stevie Wonder has classic albums. Not all of their albums, you know, ACDC, not every album is back in black, but if you're there for them making back in black, you know, it's, it's an incredible experience. So I would say blueprint. Is there a time when Jay-Z or anybody needed help with the line or needed help with the concept and you gave it to him that you listen back, you're like, yeah, I did that. Like, that's all me that you like, just wanted everybody to know about that sticks with you. Let's be clear that he doesn't need help. But what he, right, right. <laughs> what he does, what, and this is an ability that he has, is the ability to take common conversation and place it into the rap in a way that's very interesting or current events and place it in, in a rap that's very interesting. So one of the ones that I love is Pharrell had sent us some music and I put the CD in and I press play. And as soon as I press play, I look at Jay and I was just like, ooh, you already know what this is hitting for. Mm, okay. And he starts the rap off like that. You already know what it's hitting for. My God, whatever outside. And you know, like, so he, he has the, I would have never said Jay say these lines. Right, right. But he takes our normal conversation of whether or not the crew is in there and we're talking about anything. It could be sports. It could be, you know, just current events. It could be us deep diving on some particular topic that we've been talking about for a couple of days. And he, he has this ability to extract greatness out of normal conversation. Well, how have you grown as an engineer, but especially what was your growth like to put together American Gangster, which was just so like just a full sonic experience of an album? I think for me personally, my speed has, has improved. I think at a certain point when I was starting out, I was trying to prove myself and, and create a sound for myself and make a mark um, that would be different and place myself in the, in the history of not just hip-hop engineers, but engineers in general in music. And then you get to a certain point where you feel like you've done that and you start to work from a standpoint of what's the best thing for the project, you know, um, instead of me trying to... Sometimes it gets a little nerve-wracking if the engineer's trying to show off and the producer's trying to show off and the artist is trying to show off you know, it, it gets, I don't know, it's, it's like a, a paper where you're, where you're using all the fonts on the paper. You know, it, it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be very select. So I think that that along with the speed and the and speed comes from confidence of doing it a bunch of times. I think that's the main thing that, that I've grown with, 
But I have to give a lot of credit to Sean C and LV on American Gangster because they set the tone. They, you know, were very receptive to adding on a lot of live instrumentation. And the tone that they set actually set the tone for the other producers because then it's, we have a basis of where we're working from and we have sort of a um sort of a, a an idea of where we're gonna go sonically, and then people can play around that, whether or not you're going directly towards that or whether or not we're going away from that on purpose, where you know, success fits into the album, but it's not necessarily, you know, trying to be this seventies, you know, sample, but it fits. It, it fits just perfectly and it has the aggression that we need, but also just the tone of it fits into the album. Speaking of success, there are two collaborations I think we gotta talk about it. One is success and obviously this was, you know, they did Black Republicans, Jay Z and Nas, Black Republicans and Success sort of, I guess back to back or at the same you know, albums. Tell me about the energy of making success. Obviously, after the hit with the history of Jay-Z and Nas and this being their reunion, what was the energy in the studio knowing that they were finally making a, a song together? It's just a great um, environment when you know that you have two of the best, possibly two of the best ever in hip hop. And one, as grown men, as we as we grow for the youth, for our children, for younger hip hop, and even sometimes for older hip hop, for people to be able to come together and squash beef and say that this was a lyrical battle and not a physical battle. You know, you never wanted to wish any harm on Nas or anything like that. It was just the same way we do in sports. I got to judge myself against the best of the best. So here's a, here's a championship, you know, bout where it's just two people sparring. And then once you get over that, you can shake hands and you can start to collaborate. So, you know, you always just are excited to hear what Nas is going to do because you know it's going to be quality and he, he just fit so well. But I think that's the biggest thing for me is for the community, for us as hip hop, to see that that unity is possible. After you have these two juggernauts, you know, go at each other, that they can come together and make music together and, and do shows together. And, you know, it's not just a one time thing of let's just do this one record with Black Republican or this one record with success. You know, we've done a lot of shows together now over the years. Nas even showed up to our, um, our B-sides too. You know, and it was just great when we were meshing, you know, Jay was doing verses over some of the Nas instrumental and Nas is doing verses over some of the J instrumental and then we eventually get to success. It's just a beautiful thing to see. So that unity, because unity is, is just the key to success. Were they in the studio together making success and Black Republicans? No, no, no. Okay. They weren't um, at the same time. So Nas actually did it um, in his studio. But they did come together and we did discuss it when we were putting the records together when Nas' engineer is giving me the files. You know, they come together, they discuss the record, what they like, what they don't like. We give um, artists any opportunity if we want to change things because we know the pub- we don't think about it like that, but we know the public is going to get into this discussion. Who had the better verse and this person did it. So we don't want it to be anything where that person feels like you tried to one up them or anything. So they, there was a lot of discussion and, and it's more of it's almost a celebration where you're sitting down, you're, you know, you're having a meal, you know, you're having a drink and you're just discussing, you know, exactly what we're discussing now. Like sort of a look how far we've come on did you still feel a competitive element in the making of those tracks? I don't. Um, just, just from the simple fact of it's so subject heavy where it's just both of them are trying, they're both in that same position of coming from, you know, a project environment as a kid, making it in the rap game, being very successful. Even though these two individuals are different, you still have the same sort of stress. So both of them speaking on what, the stress of success feels like to them, I think was just interesting from that perspective. So no, it wasn't to me like a competition. I'm not in competition with, with anyone. It's just, it's about expressing ideas at this point. 
And then obviously the other one is uh, Hello Brooklyn with Lil Wayne. Like Lil Wayne and Jay-Z have had this like interesting relationship through the years. It felt like at that point Lil Wayne was trying to overtake Jay-Z and like there was some back and forth here and there, even though Jay-Z would go on and do Carter Three, And you never knew sort of where they were as terms of like rivals or friends or whatever. But how was Hello Brooklyn come together and what was sort of the mindset about that track? Uh, I don't think Lil Wayne, y'all were, they were in the studio for that together either, right? Again, it's just friendly competition. It's Iverson stepping on the court. And if he's going against Jordan, yeah, you are my idol. But at the same time, I'm going to cross him in this game. You know, I'm going to try my best to do that. So, number one, Lil Wayne is just one of my favorite rappers of all time because you get to watch him develop and mature. And you forget how young he was in 99 when Cash Money, you know, sort of hit the scene. And to see him develop and place a whole label on his back and, um, just just develop as an MC over the years where we really realize like, oh, this guy really cares about lyrics. And then to be able to make his own conglomerate, we sort of forget that he ushered in this new era of Nicki Minaj and the Drakes and the, even the Tigers of the world, you know, that have like 20 hit singles that he could do for the rest of his life. You know, everybody's not going to be Drake, but all of that is on the back of Little Wayne. So Wayne is one of my favorite, number one. Number two, it's, it's Wayne doing exactly what I would expect anyone to do. Any MC should think of themselves as the best or try to be the best or train themselves to try to get to that position and want to test their metal, like I said, in sports, against the best of the best. So I don't ever think that there was a thing where they didn't like each other. I think it was just a thing of, I'm trying to come for this number one spot. That's all you see is in hip-hop is this friendly competition. I just don't, I don't like it in hip-hop when it gets outside of that because that should be our focus of, Who's the best lyrically? All the rest of the stuff is fluff. All the rest of the stuff is going to go away. When we, you know, analyze these albums and these bodies of work as art 20, 30, 50 years from now, people are going to refer to the songs and much less about the hype or the marketing or any of those things that were, was around it. You sort of just listen to the song. And I think that's everybody putting their best foot forward. So that's what I thought with Wayne. And it's just, he gave us one of those impeccable Wayne moments. What song do you think has aged the best or sort of in an unexpected way on American Gangster? I would say Rock Boys. Rock Boys is probably the best. It's the one that I still hear played. You know, I play it a lot. It's that ultimate feeling of success. It's, it's winning the championship. It's what that thing feels like. Again, the whole album as itself, the body of work has aged really well. But Rock Boys for me, because it's, it, it, it sort of is the cornerstone, like that perfect middle position of I was trying to get to this position, you know, I get to this this position of prominence and then what happens after that. So I would have to say Rock Boys. Do you nitpick? Like when you go back and listen, do you nitpick yourself and, and things that, that sort of drive you crazy on albums? Did that, does that happen when you go back and listen to this? That's with any album. I go back and I hear things that I may have done differently, but then, you know, it wouldn't have been the same thing. If, if you know, I could nitpick forever and you would have never got the album. So again, with art, there is no right or wrong. There's no one way you can do it. But I do go back and sometimes say, oh, I wish I could have did this. I would have done this. Or, but it is it is what it is. There's, you know, I'm a Star Trek watcher. And there's a famous episode where Captain Picard goes back and he doesn't in time and he doesn't get in this bar fight. And instead of becoming a captain, he's just an ensign, you know, because those decisions that you made at that time, even your mistakes are what got you to this point. So, you know. As much as I would love to go back and change certain things, it is what it is, and that's that's the beauty of, of art, is that was your mistake at the given time. What's something from the album specifically that you feel that way about? 
just tonally, there's some things that I would have changed, you know, and, and, and tried to bring out a little bit more or maybe adjustment in some of the mixes. But other than, other than that, you know, like I said, there, there's small things that a lot of times us as engineers will, you know, be over all these things and think about it over and over. And it doesn't affect the people. The people right. have no idea what type of board I mixed it on or what type of microphone I use. And that's the beauty of what we do. We're sort of out of the way of doing our craft so that people can enjoy it. Um, but in general, you know, I don't think it would have made a difference in terms of how people would have received the album. It's just like you said, that that was a perfect word. It's like nitpicking. It's like, you know, just just little things. But I can't pick out one particular thing. Is Jay like that? I mean, does, does Jay-Z nitpick in that sort of way where he goes back? I mean, does he go back and listen to his albums? Does he nitpick like that? Like, what is his sort of revisiting process? We've never had discussion of him nitpicking about something. Does he go back and listen? Yeah, we, we often go back and listen to a lot of our old work, but I've, I've never sat there and nitpicked with him about, we should have did this and we should have did that. You know, once you, as an artist and you're confident in yourself, once you hand it over to the people, it's done. It's, you know, it becomes that, that piece of art. Obviously, the overall album was surprising you sort of in its reception. Is there a song that, like, you really feel people gravitate to way more than you thought they would? Or less than you thought they would? Success is, is, is the one song I think people gravitated more towards. It's amazing for me when we go to shows and, you know, I have, I don't know, like a 70-year-old white woman who comes up to me and says something about that song. And it's just like, what? Like, you know that song? You know, like, it's just, it's just weird sometimes what people gravitate towards, but they're looking at it through all these different lenses. You know, we did a, uh, we did a tour with U2 uh, when we did Blueprint 3. We were, we were the opening act for U2 for about a month in Australia. And there were U2 fans that were coming up and explaining certain songs that they loved with Jay-Z. And like that song came up and it was just amazing to me that people dove that far into our catalog. It was like a, you know, U2 fan, but they're diving into our catalog. So, you know, you never, you never know how these songs are going to hit. Are there things that did not make the album that you really wanted on the album? Or how are some of the ways the album would have looked differently? Um, there's always leftover songs. There's songs that we try. But Jay is very specific. I know if he tries a song and he doesn't come back to it within a week, he's never going to leave. There have been plenty of times where the song is good, but it doesn't fit the project. Or the song is good, but it says sort of the same thing that another song says. So you have to sort of sacrifice that song. I think Jay is impeccable with that, with knowing when to step away from a song, even though it may be good. And then his um, his ability to sequence, all of the sequencing of all of his albums is him. You know, we have discussion about it, but the sequencing, not only just the album, but the shows. I think he's just really, really good with tying songs together and what flows into another song. And I think some of that art has been lost in the streaming um, era that we're in, where people can just listen to one song. but his ability to stream, I mean, to string songs together in a particular order to tell a story, I think is another one of his talents that is not talked about. One of the th songs that I think was sort of floating around the internet for a while was Ignorant Shit, because it was like Beanie Siegel and not Beanie Siegel and different iterations of that. Can you talk about how that track sort of evolved over, over the time and how that even became something that was out for so long before the album was out? It was just something that, that we do. You know, it was uh, Just Blaze again, you know, classic sample. Um, going back and forth with Jay, you know, they have so many records together, but then eventually you just, you just make a decision on whether or not you want to include it or not, you know, whether or not it helps the story. Have you ever had songs on any albums that you just tried really hard to get on an album that didn't make it? There's been plenty of them, but, uh, I think the one that's probably I'm proudest of is Lyrical Exercise as a bonus cut. 
because lyrical exercise was something, one of those ones where, like I said, he came in, he had a great idea. And it's just, you know, it's about working out and, and, and you know, lyrically working out. Uh, but it was just an incredible first verse. And it was one of the ones that he kept like, mm, nah, I'll get back to it. And I just kept pushing him and pushing him like, I want this song. Me, personally, I need the song to argue in my barbershop about why you're one of the greatest of all time. And he eventually did the whole song. And we got, you know, and, and that's why it's a bonus cut. It was like, okay, well, cool. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, it's not going to be on the album, but let's just make it a bonus since you want it so bad. So lyrical exercise is probably that one for me. What do you think this album does for the next 15 years of his career? I mean, things could go a sort of different way if he puts out a bad album. What do you think American Gangster does for Jay-Z's career? Um, it's just another another peg in the ladder. I think it's grown so much that it'll just continue to grow and it'll be used to talk about, you know, his career from an overall perspective. Um, I think it's just going to gain more fans as more people reference it. Um, the same way that you may have, you know, a kid come up nowadays and their parent is referencing about Marley album saying, you need to listen to Catch a Fire. You need to listen to Legend. You need to, you know, and those albums are however how many years old, but still resonate with a whole new group of people. There's going to be some college kid that, you know, is just looking back and, you know, grabs this album and becomes a fan based off of this album. So I think it's one of those ones that adds on to our legacy. Like I said, it's, it's gotten so much and fans love it so much that has reached my top four. And I would have never put any of the other albums as close to Reasonable Doubt. How do you listen to albums now and who's sort of making those albums that give you that feeling that they're really being intentional about how things are being sequenced? Um, you still, you still, you know, as much as people are single driven, you still have your, your Kendricks out there. You still have your Jake Coles out there. You still have um, even just underground guys that I love. Um, I had the privilege of working with Earl Sweatshirt you know, and, and just his last album, you know, and, and the sequencing of that, we were very particular about that. So there's plenty of artists that are still out there that do worry about, you know, making full bodies of work. It's just, number one, record companies may be a little bit more apt to go for the big singles, which is why you see artists putting out a lot more than just 12 records on an album because they want to get the streaming numbers up. But two, it's also the way the consumer consumes it, you know, like, if you can just, if you're listening to a playlist, it's not necessarily going to be conducive to you listening to the full album fully through. When we get to, you know, it's just, just the devices that we need to listen to, if I'm listening to vinyl, it's going to lead for you to just play the record from the top, flip it over and play it from the other side without skipping. You know, I mean, it's not so easy to skip. We're on a cassette deck. It wasn't so easy for you to skip to the next song. You let the whole thing play. And that allows you to do skits and things that were, you know, at the end of songs that were little jewels or little gems. But there's still there's still plenty of artists out there, you know, and, and probably Kendrick being my favorite of, of the now generation, what he does in terms of um, just concepts and putting albums together. I just feel as though he's never missed, which is just an accolade that I don't know if any of us could ever say. One of the things I love doing here is like real short sort of random questions I have for you. What's the best movie soundtrack ever? Oh, good question. Probably Shaft. Shaft? Like the OG? Yes, the OG Shaft. Probably the best okay. soundtrack of all time. Or trying to think, because it's just what you got in the 70s with black exploitation movies, which just you'll never, you'll never see that level, I think, for a very long time. Recently, uh, Harder They Fall, because James uh, Samuel is, is a musician as well as a director that came close. 
But uh, I'm talking about like original score, original music that was done specifically for that movie. I would probably say Shaq. What's the best Denzel movie? Glory is up there. Uh-huh. Training Day is up there. Well, that's impossible to say. Denzel is just so good. So many different movies. If you had to pick an album that you feel like is just universally underappreciated for its greatness, what would you say people should listen to? Uh, MF Doom Food is probably the greatest, most underrated album of all time. So are there, you know, again, you're saying things that flew under the radar. I don't know if there's been an album that is that concept heavy that the person hit the mark and just, just does not deviate throughout the whole album. So I would say uh, MF Doom's Food he the whole he's talking about a bunch of different concepts, but he's relaying all of them through the use of food in, in a food concept. So you know, he's, um, one album is called you know beef. You know, so we obviously know what that's about. One album is called uh, rap snitches. You know, like we just I mean, one song is called rap. It, it's just it's so intense in, in in the concepts that he's portraying, but it's all given through food. I, I, you're going to get me on a tangent because food is one of my favorite albums of all time. There's so much in the album that ages so well, especially when we talk about what's going on now. Like rap snitches, like telling, like sitting in the court and be on star. Tell them business. You put them in court, they be their own star witness. <laughs> you see the perpetrator? Yeah, I'm right here. Like it's just, it's, it's just, or, or uh, knowing they wouldn't be talking all that baloney in the bullpen. You know, like just those little lines are just like, what was on this guy's mind, you know, to be able to do that? You know, when, or just portray, you know, just start the album off like I haven't eaten all day, right? You know, but this came from him pulling all these classic snippets, which was his style, and you know, I don't know if, if anything has been that well done. You know, it's sort of the style of when Public Enemy was making music. The whole concept was to draw a whole bunch of things in there to create chaos, right? right? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be dissonant. It's supposed to be this chaotic feel. Because that's what Public Enemy represented of that revolutionary, like, let's, let's go. Whereas when De La Soul came in, there was still this throw everything in, you know, but it was very scientific about what those particular things are. And I think by the time we get to food, doing someone who grew up like me underneath of all of those. So him being so scientific about each one of those skits, where they're placed, but still just never leaving um, this food concept in any of the songs, it's probably my favorite. I think it's a perfect album, but I digress. We could do this like we could do two hours on food also. You mentioned it earlier, so I gotta know who's the best Star Trek captain. Best Star Trek captain, Picard is. So if you look at Kirk, Kirk was an exemplification of our personality, but you gotta realize that Kirk, Bones, and Spock all represent one person. So those three personalities are really talking about the human being where it's Spock being our logic, obviously. Bones being sort of, not the wild outside, but our guy that's a little looser, that's not so straight edge. And with Kirk, it was him not being afraid. He was also, you know, there was a, there was a sexual component to him where he's going around and being just a normal person where he gets to make mistakes. But all three of those people represent a concept of the human aspect or personalities of the human experience. Where by the time we get to Picard, Picard is a little bit more mature. Picard is a little bit better leader to where he takes into account everyone's opinion and he lets them know that he's taking in their opinion. Then he makes decisions and 
once he makes that decision, he moves and he's not scared to move. Whereas Kirk had a little bit more of the just jump factor and I'll clean it up later. Carr sits and he thinks about it, but then he does move in a timely manner. But I think he's a little bit better at management. And also because the, the characters on, on Next Generation sort of got to expand a little bit on all of the characters, meaning these, these sides of, of human beings where, you know, Klingons are going to represent our honor and what it is to hold on to tradition and how do we do that and we move. Obviously, um, Troy being our, our love side or being able to just be so blatant with people because you can read their emotions and tell when they're lying. Captain Data replaces uh, Spock to a certain degree of what it is, what makes us human. What what is it to be human? Why are there certain things that this computer can't figure out? Like humor, why humor is so hard for Data because we don't have a clear definition of what's funny to us. It's just something innate that we have that we know. You know all these things. I think Picard had a a, a much bigger cast of people to reel in, which I think makes him the best captain of all time on Star Trek. That was extremely in depth. I did not know you that deep into the Star Trek world. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah you, that's serious business. We, so the last question we have is one we ask everybody: is what's one song from another artist that you wish was yours? There's a bunch of them. You know, we go all the way back to Criminal Minded. I wish you know I created those songs. We would go back to um, uh, my deep songs. You know, there's the, the songs that I wish we create, I created. We can go to Most Def. We can go to the roots you could go to you know there's there's so I, I marvel um when people are that creative and especially things that are outside of the sphere of, of what I particularly do. But if I have to pick one definitive one, I would probably say ship one by my beat. Mm, that's a good one. That's an absolute instant classic one to have on here. Just like for my opinion, just like American Gangster was an instant classic and his age like fine wine, one of Jay-Z's best albums and obviously could not be possible without Young Guru being a part of it. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here, doing this deep dive in American Gangster. And thank you for listening to Rap Stories with Young Guru to discuss American Gangster. I'm your host, David Dennis Jr. See you all very soon. This podcast is produced by Podville Media for Anscape, a Black-led media platform dedicated to creating, highlighting, and uplifting diverse Black stories. Anscape, where Blackness is infinite. Dina Morrison is the series producer. Our production team, Brittany Danielle, Rob Spiewak, Lenika Belfield-Martin, Ethan Sands, and Eli Nellis. The series was edited by Stephen Williams, Kelsey Johnson, and Rob Ford. Executive producers, Steve Reese, Elizabeth Elson, and Oscar Zabayos. Raina Kelly is Anscape's vice president and editor-in-chief. David Oku created the original artwork for the series. Special thanks to Tracy Smith, Mike Shahade, Rami Mogadam, Katie Lawson, Beth Stoikov, Anna Grambling, Ashley Melfi, John Gotti, Kelly Evans, Ryan Broadhead, and Kevin Wilson. And I'm your host, David Dennis Jr. Thank you for listening.